0: the Apostle Paul addresses here to Timothy, uh, I believe, is one of the many statements that he makes in this letter concerning the pursuit of godliness. And what he's going, the the admonition that I want to particularly focus our attention on is in verse 7 of the text that we just read, where he says there, train yourself for godliness. What does it mean to train ourselves for godliness? Well, we might notice, if you haven't noticed already, that that's our theme for the whole year. That we're looking at the, the, the books of First and Second Timothy and Titus um, under that umbrella. That what Paul says throughout these letters is that an individual need to exercise themselves in order to become godly people. What does that mean? Well, there are a lot of different ways we can explore that. in which the text explores that, we're going to look at it through this year. But certainly what we recognize is that that's a prominent element. Of the fifteen occurrences of the word godliness in the New Testament, thirteen of those occurrences are in 1st and 2nd Timothy in the book of Titus. And nine of those times in which that word appears are in the book of First Timothy. So certainly we look at what Paul's addressing here to the evangelist. He's talking to him about what godliness means and how it is to be incorporated into a person's life, or more to the point, how Timothy himself can become and exercise himself to become a godly person. Now, in order to understand, I think, this particular injunction of what it means to train ourselves to godliness, we're going to talk about the language itself. We've got to address the question of what is godliness. And I think there's a sense in which we use this very uh, religiously oriented word. We don't use godliness very much outside the context of our relationship to God um, and religion itself. But sometimes I think we may very well use this particular word or understand it in a way that's not really accurate. There's a temptation to think of godliness as being godlikeness, Or maybe because of the spelling of the word that we think godliness means goodness. And there's times in which we could plug that word in to where the scripture uses godliness and it would sort of make sense. The aspect of a good person or a person that's like God is a godly person. Those qualities sort of fit the element. Uh, those characteristics are similar, similar and desirable to godliness itself, but they are not in itself a definition of godliness. W.E.F. Vine says that godliness, and the word there is eusebia in the original language, denotes that piety which characterized by a godward attitude does that which is well-pleasing to him. The idea that godliness is an attitude. It's an approach. It's a thought or a perspective that a person has that focuses its attention on God. It is a Godward attitude. And the result of that Godward attitude is that the person that's godly desires to be, he exercises himself to be pleasing to God. Thayer's lexicon says that the original Greek word means reverence or respect. And those are English words that we're familiar with. But he adds to that in the Bible, everywhere it is piety toward God that that's what godliness is. So it's an attitude about God. It's an attitude toward God. And I believe a good working definition that we might think about when we think when we see the word godliness in scriptures or the idea of godly in terms of the adjective is that it's devotion towards God. A godly person is someone who is devoted to God. Now devotion to a person or even a devotion to a thing as we would understand it in a lot of different areas of life has to do with focus. That if a person is devoted to something it means he thinks about a lot that a lot of things he does is is, is is channeled in that particular direction. That he is willing to uh, invest himself in something that he is devoted to. So the godly or the God-devoted person is one who is influenced by God. Not in just one area of his life, but in all areas of his life. He's a person that allows God to circumscribe his life through the words of God. So a godly person is someone... You see, who wants to please God and therefore focuses attention on what God says. And we'll talk about that as we go along here in looking at this particular passage. So godliness then, in its effect or its result, would be to be like God and it would certainly be to be good. But rather, but, but godliness itself is an attitude that that sort of precedes that. We think about the aspect of obedience. A godly person is obedient. But a person, you see, is not godly because he is obedient. In fact, it's just the other way around. He's obedient because he's godly. He obeys God because he desires to please Him, and his focus and devotion is towards God. So those two things are connected, and we'll talk about how they're connected as we explore this from the Scriptures. But certainly we have to get the definition right, or we're accurate, the aspect of what godliness is. I like what one author writes. He said, Godliness is the reverent awareness of God's sovereignty over every aspect of life and the attendant determination to honor him in all of one's conduct. Notice two words there in that definition, I think, that this certainly helped me to understand this. That it presents a twofold dimension that godliness is an awareness or a knowledge of God, and it's also a determination or a willingness to act upon what one knows now the opposite of godliness would be ungodliness but I think we've transposed that from the standpoint of what we would understand about own lives that, that John says that the God and the world are diametrically opposed to one another uh, that those who love God uh, those who love the world do not love God and so the aspect of God and the world are set apart from one another and they are opposed to one another so the ungodly person is the person whose focus is on the world the godly person is the person whose focus is on God and those two things are opposed to each other the Bible will tell us, on no uncertain terms, throughout in, in many different occasions, that we get ourselves in real trouble when we try to, you see, please men and please God at the same time, or our focus is on the world and the things of the flesh rather than the things of the spirit. That those things are contradictory one to another. So we have to choose. We have to tell ourselves and come and make a determination within ourselves: where will we put our focus? And determine within ourselves whether or not we will please God or we will please ourselves. Now what Paul tells Timothy here is that the injunction itself that he gives in this passage is to train yourself to godliness. You know, it's hard for me not to conclude that Paul was not a sports fan because there are so many times when he utilizes the images of the sports world to, to describe, to reflect spiritual activity that in so many ways the person who's trying to serve God is like the person who's competing in an athletic competition. And here I think that's what's in view again. The word train, is also tra- translated in some, some translations as exercise, uh, is the word gumanazzo, which uh, is the word from which would be related to our word for gymnasium. and Or you talk about you know putting on gym shoes. You know, what do you use gym shoes for? We used to call them that. I don't know if they still call them gym shoes anymore. We used to call them gym shoes. Because you wore them to the gymnasium because you were going to exercise. And that's what the word meant was to engage in some type of exercising. The word literally means to practice, or as it's translated here, to train, as in the athletic games. And so the aspect of train, or to exercise, is the word, the verb Paul uses to connect with godliness. That he wants Timothy to be godly. He's going to give him instructions on how to be a godly person and have the quality of godliness in his life. How will that happen? Well, what Paul tells Timothy right up front is this not going to come Naturally. You're going to have to train to get it. So you see these guys that take their shirt off and they got the six-pack. I think that's what they call those things, those little muscles that I've never seen in my my whole abdomen, but they're there. They're covered up on my, when I take my shirt off. But some guys, they're there and they kind of ripple and they think, How'd he get that? I don't know. Yeah, you do. <laughs> he exercised. That's how he got them. and come naturally. And so he's got the muscles. He's able to do things that in an athletic way that astound us or amaze us. how do he get to be that way? Well though there there are some natural inclinations to being athletic. What we recognize, and what certainly the athletic world recognizes, in order to accomplish those things proficiently, a person has to engage in gumazo. He has to exercise himself to come to that proficiency. So, if godliness is something that God wants us to have, Paul would tell us how we'll get that, or how Timothy was to get that, he was to train himself toward godliness. Well, what does that mean, and how is that accomplished? How do we bring that about in our life to become godly people, to have this quality of a determination and willingness to serve God, to have the proper attitude towards God? We might notice as well as we think about this, that we've already described in terms of looking at the word, that, that godliness is not... A physical thing. It's not even a physical characteristic that you could see from the outside such as being short or tall or fat or skinny. It's the idea of an attitude of the mind. So the exercises that are going to bring about a different attitude are spiritual and mental activities. Now it's not limited to that. We're going to talk about some of the things of of the exercises or the activities that bring about godliness, And some of them are certainly even physical, habitual, physical things that help us to accomplish that. But recognizing that what changes a person from the inside is not something from the outside. It's the aspect of what the Spirit of God does within a person. And so we make a connection here that I think is absolutely essential that the the Bible makes of godliness. And that is the relationship between godliness and the Word of God. The foundation of godliness as a characteristic or quality of us is based upon It is the Word of God. It's based upon God's Word. From what we've just noticed, you see, we recognize that the godly person desires to please God. That's what he wants. He's determined to do what God would have him to do. Well, there's a prerequisite to that. If I'm going to do what God wants me to do, then I've got to know what God wants. So I've got to know God's Word. How else could I know what to be devoted to unless God tells me about Himself and gives me instructions about how to live my life? What pleases Him. Now, the thrilling thing about this pursuit of godliness and its connection to the Word of God, knowing that I need to know what God wants, is that Peter tells us that God's revealed it. His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. So what Peter would tell us at the very beginning of his epistle is that the revealed Word of God is the avenue through godliness and that God's provided everything that pertains to that. Now everything means everything, so there's nothing outside the Word of God. There's no philosophical aspect of, uh, of the teachings of men. There's no creed or book of men. There's no there's no teaching of the church, the ecclesiastical way, that I need that's absolutely essential to godliness. God's revealed it all in the aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter goes on to urge Christians to add to their faith certain necessary virtues that they might, you see, provide be provided an entrance into the everlasting kingdom, he says in 2 Peter chapter 1. And he lists some of those things. Add to your faith, you see, virtue. Included within that list is godliness. That godliness as an attitude is to be added to the life of the Christian, a virtue in the Christian's life that comes as a result of of the word of God that's been revealed by God and provides for us an entrance into the kingdom of God. Peter tells us a lot there in those passages, doesn't he? Later Paul spoke of, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3, he spoke of the doctrine that accords with godliness. In some translations say, the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And that's how uh, 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 the Holman Christian Standard Bible says it even more clear. It says there, that his power has given us everything required for life in godliness. And so, what Paul says to Timothy and Titus both, as he describes in so many details, or it's mentioned so many times, this aspect of godliness, is that it's inherently connected with their understanding of the revelation of God. If you seek to be godly, you've got to spend time in God's Word, you've got to open the scriptures, you have to learn what God would have you to learn. There is no no alternative, there's no hidden secret somewhere, there's not some spiritual exercise you can do in the corner of your room or with some group of people that will make you godly apart from the influence of the Spirit of God through the Word of God. And so Paul makes this point to Timothy, even in the very beginning of our text that we're studying this morning. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul warns Timothy that some would depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceiving spirits and the teachings of demons. Now, before he gets around to telling Timothy that he needs to train himself for godliness, he warns him about about individuals that would come along and deceive others. And he says there are those who some are going to depart from the faith. And they're going to depart from the faith by devoting themselves. Notice there that aspect of devotion. By devoting themselves to something other than the word of God. They're going to devote themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Those things that are false. He describes these individuals as insincere liars in the passage. He says they go about forbidding marriage and teaching absence of food. As though those are avenues to godliness. When he says in another passage they have no power to uh, to overcome the indulgence of the flesh. That those outward absences are simply substitutes, and these individuals, no doubt, claimed their godliness on the basis of their ascetic lifestyle because of what they were willing to give up, or how often they were able to, they were willing to fast, or to show their piety in some outward way. Paul rejects all of that. As important as discipline is, and we're going to talk about that, and Paul talks about it. What he says up front to Timothy is these outward disciplines that are done for the purpose you see of showing other individuals how spiritual we are. Those things that are not based on what God has actually said in, in his word and commanded in his word. They are irreverent and silly myths he calls them. They have no relevance to the aspect of the development of godliness because they have no truth in them. So these ascetic disciplines would not produce true devotion to God. They would provoke promote true spirituality because they were not based on what God had said. Now I don't want us to miss that because that's an important element of understanding what Paul said to Timothy is how he prefaces it to this young man. You have to be based in what God has revealed. You can't go about believing everything that anybody says everywhere, about religion or about what's right or wrong. But that's not the road to true godliness. Now that would tell me that if I really want to develop a spiritual attitude that pleases God, there's a place to begin. The foundation is the Word of God. Now notice how he says this in verse 6. In a positive sense. Before he tells Timothy to train for godliness, he gives him the basis on which he would make that appeal. He says, if you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of the faith and of the good teachings that you have followed. So what Paul does for Timothy is he tells him, you already have the foundation for the training of, of godliness. You already know the basis on which you can become stronger and a more godly person if you hold on to what's been revealed. If you are nourished by the words of the faith. Paul had revealed through the Holy Spirit the words of the faith. And the word nourished here is also translated as trained in some translations. It's connected to the word we looked at earlier. It means to persevere in. It means more literally to be skilled in or to be built up in. And that's what Paul says Timothy needs to be and ultimately will be as he pursues this course of becoming a godly person. He will be skilled in the use of the word of God. He'll be built up by the use of the the words of faith. A good servant of Jesus is nourished by the words of God. Now that fits into our perception of exercise and discipline and all of that. If you're going to exercise so that you would be more healthy and you want that six pack or you want those muscles or you want to become strong or you want to be proficient, you're going to have to do some exercising, but you better eat right too. Because if you don't eat right, it won't make any difference what kind of exercises you do. You won't get the results you desire. And so our daily devotion to God our desire to please Him. And how many times do we do we really wish that's what we had? It's not that we don't know what God said. We just wish at the moment at which it all comes together, we actually had the desire to do what God said enough that we would actually do it. We know we'd be better off if we obey it. We know we'd be better off if we prayed more, if we visited the sick, if we did those things that would help other individuals, if we read our Bibles more, if we were stronger to face temptation, if we could overcome this habit that we have that God doesn't want us to How are we going to do that? Well, the moment in which we fail in that, the first thing we recognize is what we don't have enough of and that's determination and will to get it done. And so the aspect of godness is connected to that. It's the idea of eating nutritiously from the Word of God, spending time in God's Word, and building ourselves up with the Word of God so that when it comes time to actually engage in the exercise that God would have us to do, you will have some result. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. Just skip ahead to the second epistle Paul writes to Timothy, and I think he comes back to this very point. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now Paul doesn't use the word godliness here, or godly. But certainly, this is a functional description of the godly person, is it not? The Christian does his best Because he's devoted, he does his best to present himself approved unto God because he wants, above everything else, to please God. He strives to live a life that's approved of God because he's determined. So he has this knowledge and he has this determination. Well, how does he accomplish that? It says he accomplishes this through the handling of God's word correctly. That's how he gets it done. You throw the Bible off to the side, you don't care about what God says, or you dismiss the word of the Bible. There's no foundation from which you can exercise to become a godly person. You might please others and you might please yourself, but you won't be pleasing to God. And that's what godliness is all about. So there's a sense in which we recognize that godliness not only has a connection to the foundation of the word of God, but it becomes a reality in a person's life through self-discipline. And Paul uses athletics to illustrate the life of the Christian as we mentioned several times and certainly this is one of those thoughts that comes out in that is that to become what God wants us to be and to function the way that God wants us to function we have to discipline ourselves. In 1 Corinthians 9, a passage I think that's familiar to us along those very lines Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable reap, but we are unperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now I submit to you that the people whom Paul was writing to in the city of Corinth well understood the concepts he was addressing here. The Isthmus Games were held there. and They were very familiar with the aspect of what it meant for an athlete to excel And what a commitment or a devotion it was to even participate in those games. A runner must train for the race. A boxer must discipline his body before he steps into the ring. If he's going to engage in the activity, he has to make a devoted determination that this is what he's going to accomplish. The focus here in this passage in 1 Corinthians 9 is not on physical exercise, but spiritual fitness. And Spiritual fitness is something I think that we need to be concerned about. I'll tell you this, and this is just a side note, and you can take this as one of, one, that's one of Dave's thoughts about this thing. But I read several comments about the passage, 1 Corinthians 9, and the idea of training and training for godliness and uh, how other individuals dress. I was somewhat perplexed and somewhat disappointed by how many times, in the context of explaining 1, Corinthians, 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, that the, that the discussion got around to the aspect that you need to eat right and not, to, not put too many carbohydrates in your body and you need to go to the gym. And I'm all for diet and going to the gym. Well, I'm not all for it, you can tell that. But, <laughs> but I, there's certainly value in that. Paul's going to address that, isn't he? The bodily exercise has value. We have to recognize that what God is concerned about is spiritual fitness. And if, if we were as concerned about our spiritual body as we are about our physical body in the culture in which we live, this would be a different place. This would be a different place. Now this is what God is telling us. There is a the, you have the ability through the Word of God to make yourself stronger, to make yourself better, to make yourself more spiritually fit, and it will be accomplished through the foundation of what God has revealed and the daily choices that you make to put God first. Because that's really what it boils down to. That you have to be devoted to what you want to accomplish to the point that you be willing to sacrifice to get it done. To put the spiritual over the physical understanding that even even as it is with the physical that the road to spiritual fitness is not the road of least resistance it's not the one that traveled naturally it demands hard work and a willingness to suffer to put god first but we need to recognize that there's a promise here. In the passage we're going to look at uh, in a lesson, the Lord willing, uh, maybe later on down the road, we'll talk about where Paul talks about the promise of godliness. But we need to understand that God does promise that if we will put these things into practice, we will train ourselves toward godliness, we will be godly people. We will not fail. But real quickly, what are some of the disciplines that we could suggest here? And I say suggest not because because they're optional, but because there are so many ways in which we can address this subject, and there are a lot more disciplines, spiritual disciplines, that I believe work towards godliness that we're not going to have time to mention or talk about this morning, but Bible reading and meditation is essential. And I say Bible reading and meditation because reading itself is not all that God wants. Reading is good, and certainly it's absolutely essential, but meditation on the Word of God and true study of the Word of God internalizes what we read and puts it in a position to be guided by the Holy Spirit. If we just read it to be read, if we read it so that we can get through the Bible in a year because we want to read so many passages, never making an attempt to internalize that, we shortchange the ability of the Holy Spirit to really change our lives and to be what God wants us to be. In the 40th Psalm, verse 8, a passage of words that are later on used to describe Jesus Himself. The psalmist says, "I dear, I desire to do Your will, O God. I come to Your word. I want to be who I I want to be someone who pleases You. So tell me what You want me to do. Constant prayer. I'll ask you a couple questions. How often do you pray?" Do you pray for a godly mind? Do you pray for spiritual things? Do you ever pray out of godly sorrow? You know, the, the Bible talks about godly sorrow. A sorrow that's based on our life because of what God has said and what God has done. You know, I can be sorry because I got caught because I'm because I'm suffering in some way. Or I can be sorry because I offended God. And this is wrong. And I can be sorrow over my life. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. But the idea here is that there are a lot of things that reflect a Godward attitude that would push us to prayer. Would want us to, to, to speak to God about these things. Do you ask God to help you with have you a godly influence in an ungodly world? Do you want others to have the same desire that you have to serve God? Prayer is a part of that. Spiritual thinking... We don't spend much time thinking about spiritual things sometimes in our life. We haven't haven't disciplined our minds. It's not that we can't think about them. It's not that we can't understand them. Or even that they're not necessarily important to us at times in our life. But we haven't disciplined our minds to keep our minds on spiritual things. It's easy to be distracted. So what do we spend our time thinking about and talking about? We spend our time on sports and TV shows and the weather and politics. Those things aren't bad. Those things will not produce godliness. Only spiritual things in our minds will produce godliness. So Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, and that word is the word virtue there, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And that's a discipline for us. Each ingredient is about a matter of personal choice. We have to choose to think about these things because the world will not lead us in that direction. And there's moral purity. Sensuality is a big obstacle for Christians today. Because there are so many opportunities for us to see that which is immoral and to witness that which is immoral and be drawn in by it. It takes real effort and work to avoid the onslaught of sensual images that are present to us every day on TV and computers and the internet. In any place we want to go. If a person has a desire to be godly, he has to have the discipline to move away from those things. Where this is the will of God, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor and not in passion of lust. And so we need to be disciplined there. Discipline of speech. You know, James tells us what's before us, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, a person's religion is worthless. The true test of our godliness is often in not our ability to speak, but our ability or our willingness to not speak. It's not just defined in what we say, but sometimes it's defined in the ability of us to bridle our tongue and say nothing when nothing needs to be said. It's a battle to say the right thing at the right time, to say those things that build up and do not tear down. That even the truth can be spoken in such a way that it works against the development of godliness in a person's life. That's, that's, this is a battle we will never win without a desire to please God. Every moment we open our mouth, we have to be willing to please God with what we say. And then there's regular assembling, passage we're familiar with in Hebrews chapter 10. Paul says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Let me tell you something about yourself. You had to make a choice to be here today. You didn't just arrive by accident. Now it might be good for us sometimes to think about why we make that choice. But another question to ask in connection, that are you here... Because you want to discipline yourself to godliness. Are you here for the purpose or for the cause of becoming a godly person? Are you here out of a devotion to God? Out of a desire to please God? And that what you want to do when you come together is to grow to a person who is even more godly or devoted to God. Now, if that's true, then you're right on target. Because that's what Paul, the writer of Hebrews here, is saying about assembly. That we should not neglect it or put it off. We should not abandon it because... The purpose of the assembly, or at least one of the purposes of the assembly, is to stir up love and good works. It's not only about praising God, it's about a relationship to one another that we have a responsibility to one another to cause each other to be more devoted to God. And so we're called to assemble for the very purpose of training to godliness in ourselves and others. And then lastly, let me mention generous giving. As I mentioned, this is not a comprehensive list, but this one makes sense to me. How can we escape the power of materialism and worldliness? We talked about that being a, the enemy of godliness. How can we escape the power of materialism and worldliness in the, in, the, in the culture around us that so confronts us where people focus all on what they can get and what they can do with their money and what they can possess and the things that are around them? When I look at the Scriptures, I think that one of the answers to that is through giving. That God would have us direct our attention and focus our attention on spiritual things by giving us the opportunity in our life to give away the physical things. Or to be willing to exercise the discipline about giving. And I'm not talking about giving to fill up a church treasury. I'm not even talking about giving in the first, as we just did a few moments ago into the church treasury by Christians on the first day of the week. I'm not talking about meeting a budget. What I'm talking about is the willingness of heart where someone will respond to a need by giving up something they have for someone else. That the development of godliness calls for that. It calls for giving from a sincere heart. Like the believers in Macedonia, it says, who gave themselves first to the Lord. It's not an accident that that passage is there to describe the aspect of actual physical giving. Paul wanted them to actually put something in the pot so he could take it back. But he encouraged that giving through telling them that this is what motivates true physical giving. And that is a giving first to yourself to the Lord. That's godliness. That's what it is it's that devotion. Now God tells us there are fruits of that. God loves a cheerful giver that it will produce joy in our own life. We will grow to be individuals who give not grudgingly of necessity, but we will give cheerfully because of Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So all of those things portray to that. But real quickly as we end, how do you recognize the godly person? You see him on the street? You see him here or there? It treats me that in 1 Timothy 2, that Paul speaks about conduct which is proper for women who profess godliness. We look at this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. That that's one of the first times in the book where Paul mentions the word godliness. And he, he says that, let me tell you about women who profess godliness. And then what does he tell us about the women? Or what instructions does he give about the women in that context? He talks about putting on clothing, modest apparel, that a a, a woman who professes godliness ought to dress right. She ought to dress modestly. Now, what's Paul telling us is he telling us that godliness is outward that you can tell a godly person by the clothes that they wear and that there's and that that's what it's all about. Well, he's not teaching us that godliness godliness is on the outsides because certainly that's what he's is said that what he's talking about here is an attitude the incorruptible spirit of a meek and, the incorruptible value of a meek and quiet spirit is how Peter defines it. Is talking about an attitude of propriety and shame facet. That's what's in view in 1 Timothy chapter 2. But that's not really my point. My point about that particular aspect of the mentioning of godliness is that recognize that Paul is defining godliness by the choice that a woman would make in what she wears. Now what kind of choice is that? That's one of a whole day's worth of choices, isn't it? A woman's going to get up and, and, and do things during the day. She's got to decide what she's going to eat for breakfast. She's got to decide you know, which car maybe she's going to drive. She's got to decide what she's going to do that day, how much money she's going to A lot of different choices that we make every day of our life. But The godly woman goes to her closet, she opens the door, and she takes godliness with her. That's what Paul's saying. The godliness is born out in the comprehensive choice, even of choosing of what you will wear that day. Because it's everywhere. He said earlier that godly men lift up holy hands everywhere. They're not just concerned about whether or not they please God here or there in the church building or outside the church building. Godliness is something they do every day in all the choices that they make. It's not about who we are at church. It's not about just who we are in this particular circumstance or in certain segments of our life. Godliness is about every choice that we make. Even the clothes that you wear. Because that means you're either professing godliness or you're not. The choice about how we speak to our children, what we claim on our taxes, what TV shows we watch, what websites we will visit, all of those you see are exercises toward godliness as we make the right choices. It is in essence the choice to obey God or not to obey God. Are you devoted to Him? Do you want to please Him above everything else? Is that something that runs through your mind Every day as you make the choice of life, what would God want me to do? What does God want me to do right now? What does God want me? to do? Let me answer that question for you if you're not a Christian. God wants you to be saved. He wants you to be obedient to His will so that you be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. But before you go through the activities of obedience, of repenting of your sins and confessing Jesus as your Lord and being baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins, you're going to need something. You're going to need an attitude that says, I want to please God above everything else. You know, we read Acts 2. If I would just real quickly, Acts 2, the beginning of the preaching of the Gospel. How many people were baptized on that day? 3,000. Remember that, right? We got that number down. 3,000 were baptized. 3,000 souls do you remember who were baptized on that day? You know how many. Do you remember who were baptized on that day? We say, "Well, believers were baptized." That's right. People that repented. Yeah, that's right. But think about what the text says at the first part of chapter two, verse forty-one. Then those who gladly received His word were baptized. You see, that's what it took. A whole bunch of people gathered that in the day. Who was baptized? Those who gladly received the word of God. That was the foundation of their obedience. Their willingness to believe what God said, hold it above everything else. They want to please God. So they listened to what God said. And when God when God's apostles said, repent to be baptized, they didn't balk at that. They didn't resist They gladly received that word. That's godliness in action, folks. Will you do that this morning while we stand tomorrow?